If you wish to become a complete and wise leader, you must embrace a larger view of the Force. Welcome, everyone. My name is Devor, and you are listening to a special bonus interlude episode of A Larger View of the Force, a Star Wars podcast. In this episode, we're going to be revisiting some of the themes and ideas that I brought up in episode six, where I talked about the influence of classical Western philosophy on the Jedi. And I'll be doing that with a special guest, someone who, unlike me, is actually a philosopher instead of just cosplaying as one, which is what I do. He is one half of the Star Wars podcast, We Serve Droids, a certified friend of the show, and most importantly, an in-real-life friend. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks, Devor. It's great to be here. I, I'm, I'm really glad to be having you on since you were the We Serve Droids was the first Star Wars podcast I ever listened to. So in a way, this is all your fault. <laughs> if you want to think about it that way. Like, I, don't, I don't think a court of law would hold me liable for this. <laughs> Well, we're going to talk about free will and agency a little bit later on, so that's something we can get into. So just to um, just to give the listeners a little background on like how this episode came to be. So as I mentioned, you and I know each other off of the internets, and you reached out to me after episode six dropped last week, and you had this idea for a follow-up episode to kind of dig into some of the topics that I brought up in the episode, and you sort of like laid out what you wanted to talk about, how you wanted to structure and so on. And I was basically like, yeah, sounds great. Let's do it. And so here we are recording on a Sunday night. (laughs) So... So we're going to start with sort of the first topic that like you had mentioned and what we're going to get into first is to pick up something that I had brought up in the episode and talked a little bit about, but didn't really dwell on since it wasn't a kind of main subject area that I was interested in, which is to go back to the conversation that I had about the force and about what Yoda has to say about the nature of the force and his connection to the force in The Empire Strikes Back in that scene where he lifts the X-Wing out of the bog and sort of the connection between that and some of the stoic ideas about physics and about cosmology and the nature of the universe and so on. So like at this point, sort of, I wanted to give the floor to you to talk about this for a little bit or sort of to build on and add on some of the things that I brought up in the episode. Yeah, no, I'd love to. Like, like, like you said, I just, I had so much fun listening to that episode and thinking about the relationship between Star Wars and Stoicism that I was sort of excited to, to maybe share some of those thoughts with you and, and chat, you know, kind of work through them, through them together would be a lot of fun. And the place I really want to start is actually to go back in time even more from behind the Stoics and, and kind of get to them. Uh, and that's to go back in, in your episode, you had mentioned uh, some of the pre-Socratic philosophers. Yeah. And I just want to like very briefly kind of set up a distinction between two big schools. Uh, and that's the group of people known as the Eleatics and another group that's known as the Heracliteans. So uh, I promise this isn't going to be uh, a, a long, a long lecture. <laughs> but the the Eleatics they're sort of typified by you know their sort of founder is a guy named Parmenides, and someone that, that some of the listeners may be familiar with is is a different Zeno than you had mentioned in the last podcast, Zeno of Alea, who is famous for these sort of paradoxes of motion. So if you're familiar with sort of Zeno's arrow, like if Devor tries to shoot me with an arrow. Uh, before it kills me, it has to travel half the distance. But before that, it has to travel half the distance of that. And before that, half the distance of that. So, you know, before Newton invented calculus, this was a real problem for how the arrow, like, ever got anywhere. And it sounds a little silly, but one of the Eleatic doctrines was that motion is impossible. And a lot of the pre-Socratics have these, like, kind of funky things they say, like, everything's made of water, which, you know, sounds <laughs> a little funny to, to modern ears. But I think the the idea that motion's impossible, it's not that, cr- like, the pre-Socratics, they're only as crazy as you let them sound. So if you take, like, something like four-dimensionalism, like the idea that, you know, time is just another dimension, like length and width and height. So for, for any listeners who've read, uh, what's the Vonnegut book, Slaughterhouse-Five? 
are going to be familiar with this idea of four-dimensionalism, that you could imagine the universe is just sort of four-dimensional block. And, you know, we occupy time slices of, of that block. Like, that's a way of sort of modeling a world like ours with no motion. So I don't think the Eliadic view is as, as crazy as it sounds. But then, you know, second half of that two-faced coin to the Eliadics is the Heracliteans. And so Heraclitus is supposedly famous, or he's famous for supposedly having said that no man can step into the same river twice. Uh, and the idea is that, right, it's it's not the same river, right? It's different water flowing through it. And then as you meditate on that, you're supposed to come to realize that not only is the water different, but the man is different, right? The person who steps into the, the river the second time is not the same person. To the same extent, the river is not the same river. And so for the Heracliteans, change or flux is all pervasive. And this is why of the sort of four, like, you know, main elements of the world the Heracliteans thought that fire, which doesn't hold a form or ever cease moving, is the fundamental element of the world. And so um, if I could actually go like an aside on an aside to something that I think is kind of <laughs> sure, cool. Sure, go ahead. Yes. I'm enjoying this. <laughs> is that one of, actually, one of Plato's innovations was to marry these two ontologies. So for listeners who you know had to read The Republic in, in, in high school or in college will remember that the realm of the forms is this changeless Eleatic form. Uh, and then the realm that we occupy with, you know, mud, dirt, and gross stuff is the sort of Heraclitean, you know, realm with with constant change. But of these two pre-Socratic cosmologies, Devor, which one do you think sounds more like Yoda's view of the universe and of the Force? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, don't, I would say probably like the one the one premised on change. Yeah, that's that was kind of what what got my wheels turning is that right always in motion the future is is yeah yes. the the sort of line that I was thinking of, and the Stoics really borrowed this view uh, from the Heracliteans that fire was the foundational element of the world, so they saw the world as sort of always in motion, always changing, but whereas the fire was just sort of a brute element for the Heracliteans. For the Stoics, they associated this fire with the faculty of reasoning. And so one of their ways of talking about this fire was to also describe it as, as reasoning or as principle, using the Greek word logos. But also they use a lot of biological metaphors in talking about this pervasive fire that's, that's a mixture of everything. So the Again, to, to throw in another, not, not to cloud uh, everyone's minds, but, you know, a contemporary with Stoicism was Epicureanism, and, and they were hardcore atomists, right? Everything was at bottom level some different kind of particle, whereas the Stoics really believed that there were these mixtures of different fundamental objects or fundamental stuff. So fire was kind of this fire, but this rational biological fire was sort of mixed in with everything. And so this is a, a quote, it's a quote from a, an early Christian, Eusebius, but he was sort of quoting a, uh, a prior philosopher, a, a, I don't know how to say anyone's names, but uh, <laughs> Aristocles, I think is, is my best guess at yeah, it. Probably, yeah. Yeah. Um, so Aristocles himself, I think was probably, he was Aristocles the Peripatetic, so I think he was an Aristotelian, but he himself wrote a kind of history of all these guys and you know, as it is, like, Aristocles would have recorded the stuff we wouldn't have, but we don't even have Aristocles. We just have Eusebius's <laughs> fragments of Aristocles' <laughs> fragments. So, right, the, the chain is pretty cloudy. But, uh, but he has this description of the Stoic view of the fire, and he says, The primary fire is, as it were, a sperm, which possesses the principles, the logos, of all things and the causes of past, present, and future events. The nexus and succession of these is fate, knowledge, and truth, and an inevitable, inescapable law of what exists. And I yeah, just... It sounds so much like the Force. It yeah. does, it does. It really it just, does. Yeah, go ahead, sorry. No, that's that's all I was going to say. Yeah, it just calls to mind that, that through the Force, things you will see, other places, the yes. future, the yes. past, old yes. friends long gone... And I mean, I didn't necessarily want to introduce this here, but part of the Stoic cosmology is that the universe, because it is rational and dictated by this kind of rational reasoning fire that pervades everything, it's, it's actually cyclical. Like the universe can only unfold one specific kind of way. And it does so again and again and again. And so this notion of past and future gets a little bit blurred in a way that, again, Yoda seems to describe happens in meditation or in a forced trance or whatever. 
and maybe, you know, if you really want to go off into like uh world between worlds stuff from Clone Wars, <laughs> uh, I'll let, let you, you and, 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 uh, and the force does have a lot of fun, fun with that. Uh, but, but I just, I really love that. Uh, this idea that the central element to the Stoics is this always in motion thing that imbues all living matter. So the, the Stoics, they actually go on to identify this fire as God. And not only does it pervade the whole universe, but it pervades living creatures. So this, you know, skipping, skipping ahead some centuries, this is Cicero, um, who I think you quoted several times. Yeah. Uh, Cicero says, uh, veins and arteries do not cease to pulsate by a flame-like movement. And it has often been observed that when a living thing's heart is torn out, it beats so rapidly that it resembles the swiftness of fire. Therefore, every living thing, whether animal or vegetable, is alive on account of the heat enclosed within it. From this, it must be understood that the element heat has within itself a vital power which pervades the whole world. And then skipping ahead, that element sustains the whole world and protects it, and it certainly does not lack sensation and reason. And it just, again, this is, feels like shades of Obi-Wan talking about an energy field created by all living beings that surrounds us and penetrates us and, and binds the galaxy together. Yeah, definitely. And so I just think that, uh, I don't know, it's, it's really cool that, you know, you had this idea of, oh, the Stoic ethics really pervades the, the Jedi thought uh, in a way that sort of maybe fills in some, some details on Jedi thinking and it. And I think it really links into the Stoic view of, of physics, sorry, the Stoic physics or the Stoic cosmology, that there's this kind of like all pervasive force that is connected to past, present, and future, that has some sort of connection to all biological beings, that's the sort of central principle of the universe. And so I just thought it was a, a really nice kind of bow on the, on the episode that, that you had produced. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, this is one of the advantages you know, to go back to what I said at the beginning of the episode of talking with an actual philosopher, you know, somebody who actually knows who has a bigger, bigger picture on all of this than I do. So yeah, so I, I really, really like those particularly like those quotes that you brought in. I think they really connect really well with, as you mentioned, some of the things that Yoda talks about and some of the things that Obi-Wan talks about, or even like the way that Luke talks about the force in The Last Jedi. Yeah, for, for my money, the Luke stuff and Last Jedi, I think, is some of the best world-building force mythology that we get in any of the Star Wars media. Yeah, I honestly, I like his explanation of the force to Rey better than Ben's in A New Hope. Yeah, and, and that's even with the funny, you know, tickling her with the, the, the <laughs> sticker feather part, too. I love that part. Which, you know, Force Ghost Yoda is just smiling when he sees yeah. that. Yeah, that's, you know, to go back to when I was talking about when we first meet Yoda, like, that's another great little, like, you know, Jedi of cynics moment when he does that. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, there's, there's no shortage of Diogenes in Luke on Acto, (laughs) like, (laughs) Diogenes would would straight to drink straight from the, uh, the teat of (laughs) Diogenes milk. (laughs) Yes. He was some milk and some cows or goats or whatever in ancient <laughs> Greece. I think it would have been goats. Um. Right. <laughs> right. Um, so with that as a background, something I was kind of curious about. So the Stoics, right, they have this all-pervasive reasoning logos fire throughout the universe. But like you had mentioned in the, the Stoic episode, our well-being, according to the Stoics, depends on our accepting that reality, right? Our, our right. coming to terms with that being outside of our control. And so it, it seems like in some sense, it's up to us whether or not to accept the sort of fate of the universe, but we can't really like rebel against it in, in, in the stoic way of thinking, right? We can't control the universe, but we can control the degree to which we assent to the nature of the universe. And some scholars, particularly a guy named Michael, I believe it's pronounced Freda, F-R-E-D-E, or Frida, I'm not sure. He finds in this notion the origin of our sort of modern understanding of free will. You know, like anytime you read these like ancient texts, it's it's very hard to get in the mind frame of some of these people because we carry, you know, these thousands of years of intellectual revolutions along with us. Um, so it's it's hard to like think back to a time before anyone had a notion of a free will. But it really seems like a lot of the ancient Greeks just didn't conceive of it. Um, either they weren't aware of something like a will, 
like that particular faculty of the mind, or they weren't aware of if we had one, that it would be in some sense uh, free or up to us. So a lot of people think that the free will is an innovation of the Christian theologian Augustine, who is trying to reconcile, like, you know, how could how could there be a, a God who's all good, but still punishes people? And so Augustine's, you know, answer to that is that, well, we have a sort of unconstrained will that God can't force us to do things. And then others find it in Aristotle or the Epicureans. Uh, but Freda makes a pretty interesting case that we find it here in the Stoics, And I was just curious if you had ever thought about this relationship between personal agency and determinism under the surface of all this talk of like the force and destiny in Star Wars. Yeah, I would definitely been thinking about that, particularly, you know, in the run up to knowing how we'd have to record this episode. And, you know, when I was thinking over the course of the saga and like all the other kind of material that we get in Star Wars, in some ways you brought it up before, and maybe I'll talk about this a little bit in episode seven when I talk with the, with the Force Toast ladies about Rebels. In some ways, like the world between worlds is this kind of like interesting introduction in Star Wars in the sense that like you see Ezra kind of like walking through this plane and like he's hearing all of these things that like happen in the future and so on that are going to happen like later down the story and it does kind of like get you to pause and think like well like is anybody actually making any choices or is all of this like kind of written down and it's all going to happen but kind of tabling that question yeah so I was thinking about you know the question of like free will and determinism and like destiny and so on in the context of Star Wars and one thing kind of stood out to me one observation which is that in Star Wars, it seems like a belief in a notion of like uh, like free will and choice seems to be mainly associated with the light side and particularly like with the Jedi and the kind of quote unquote good guys. And it is that the dark side users are more prone, at least in my observation, to believing in a kind of fixed destiny. And when we do see in Star Wars, the good guys do toying with this notion of like fate or destiny or, you know, things being fixed in terms of like the course of one's life and so on. It's often to their detriment. So I think, for example, like in the prequels with like the prophecy of the chosen one with like Qui-Gon finding Anakin and like bringing him to the Jedi Council and saying like, here he is, here's the one who's going to bring balance to the force. This is the prophesized figure in some ways you can make the case that that puts a lot of kind of pressure and expectations on anakin because basically like the fate of the entire galaxy and the balance of the force is put on this boy and so like you can you know think about and make the case like well does that in some way kind of affect the course of his training and the fact that he gets trained at all and like does that ultimately you know get us to empire darth vader and all that and so on right And then it also kind of comes up in the original trilogy, which is to say, like, there's this kind of tension that we start to see, particularly in Return of the Jedi, between Luke on the one hand and Yoda and Obi-Wan on the other. Yoda and Obi-Wan both think that Anakin is essentially lost forever. You know, Yoda has this line in Empire, you know, where he says, like, once you start down the dark path forever, will it dominate your destiny? So there's this notion, oh, well, like, well, Anakin is gone. He's turned to the dark side. He can't come back. Like He's lost. It's over for him. Like His fate is kind of sealed. Whereas Luke believes otherwise. He thinks that there's good in him. Anakin is still alive and that he doesn't need to kill his father the way that Yoda and Obi-Wan think. And what's interesting about the Yoda Obi-Wan view about like that Anakin's fate and destiny are sort of sealed by the dark side is it's a view they share with Palpatine. Because if you think about in Return of the Jedi, when Vader brings Luke before the Emperor, one of the things that Palpatine says to him about Vader is he says, by now you must know he can never be turned from the dark side, as will it be with you. So actually, Palpatine, Yoda, and Obi-Wan all believe the same thing about Anakin. They think he's forever lost to the dark side. He's Darth Vader. He can't be turned. And it's Luke sort of standing on his own who believes that it is, in fact, possible that Anakin slash Vader, however you want to name him, like, does have a choice to make. And even as we see also in Jedi, Vader himself sort of believes that he is that his fate is kind of sealed. You know, when they have that scene on Endor before they go up to the Death Star, you know, he talks about how like, you know, you don't know the power of the dark side. I must obey my master. And then he says, you know, it's too late for me, son. So there is definitely this kind of like dark sider view where like you have a kind of fixed destiny and like there's very little kind of choice and agency within that versus like, let's say somebody like Luke who much more believes that. 
much more believes in a notion of choice. And I think, funnily enough, I think the film that deals with this most explicitly, where you most starkly see this kind of light side, dark side divide that I'm talking about, is actually The Rise of Skywalker. So what you see in the case of The Rise of Skywalker is both Kylo Ren and Palpatine at different points sort of insisting that Rey needs to embrace the dark side because she is a Palpatine. Mm-hmm. You know, Kylo at one point, I think this is on, yeah, I think this is on Kef Beer when they're on the Death Star wreckage. And he, he tells Rey, like, the dark side is in our nature. And then Palpatine later on, when she goes to Exegol and sees him, you know, he tells her, you will take the throne. It is your birthright to rule. It is in your blood, our blood. So both of them think like, well, she's a Palpatine, ergo, dark side, ruler of the Sith. You got to take the throne. That's your path. It's already set for you. Whereas Rey, on the other hand, rejects this notion and ultimately forges her own path and sort of affirms her own sort of agency and choice. And sort of that decision ultimately gets solidified at the end of the movie once she kind of rejects the name Palpatine and becomes Rey Skywalker. That becomes the kind of bow on the present that kind of illustrates her kind of taking control of her own future and her own destiny and kind of writing her own story. Mm Mm-hmm. Versus kind of rejecting the kind of Kylo slash Palpatine view of her as having this kind of fixed fate by virtue of who her grandfather is. And actually, like when I was sort of thinking about when I was thinking about this split and this like question of free will and agency, it naturally got me to thinking about a kind of more modern philosophical movement, something that I wanted to like address in a later episode at some point. But I think since we're talking about it now, I might as well bring it up now, which is existentialism. Mm-hmm. And I think there's some relevance here. So I don't know, maybe I, 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 you, you didn't know I was going to bring this up. So maybe I'm kind of like putting you on the spot right now. So I can't, I can kind of like jump in. I do have some notes here, but I don't know if you could, if you wanted to just give like the listeners just that kind of brief, like quick, like few sentence one-on-one on like what existentialism is, which is yeah. really a hard question. Yeah, right. So <laughs> sure, sure. So uh, turn in me and your, your copy of Kierkegaard too. <laughs> um, so I, I, I would this is definitely outside of what I study is is more analytic philosophy. That's English American philosophy, and and I'm I'm not expert in, in French philosophy. But the catchphrase for existentialism is that existence precedes essence. So the idea that um, this is a, an example that that Sartre uses. If you have an object, he uses a kind of object that we don't use anymore. So I'll just use scissors instead. Like when you make scissors, there's a function that you want it to do something. And because it has that function, you design it in a certain way. So the function sort of dictates the form of it. So the the craftsperson creates the scissors in order for it to serve that purpose and sort of has a purpose. But humans are something without a purpose, right? Particularly, there's there's both a, a, a Christian strand of existentialism and an atheist strand of existentialism. And I think the atheist strand is sort of more convincing because the idea is like, look, there's no God. There's nothing before us, right? But we sort of create ourselves, our own functions. And so the idea is that, that we have this sort of, as it were, radical freedom, to, again, to use a phrase of Sartre's, to make our own way in the world and to choose not just who we are and what we are, but to make our own value, right? So a pair of scissors, right? Like if it just doesn't cut paper, it's just a bad pair of scissors, <laughs> But but uh, it's not as though I am a bad person judged by some other value system. Rather, I create my own value system, and it's under that own value under which create the value under which I am a good or bad, or I do a good or bad job. So that's, that's you know, a, a, a quick and dirty five-minute existentialism. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's really good. I, I really, really like that. Just to kind of like build off of that to sort of – to get us eventually around to like why I brought this up in the first place and then connect it back to Star Wars. So as Scott mentioned, right, there was this – one of the important concepts in existentialism is this notion of like radical freedom, that we have this ability to decide our own values and so on. Related to that, one of the things that the existentialists say is that, on the one hand, humans have this kind of free will and liberty and so on and this radical freedom. But rather than that being a kind of unambiguous good, or at least experiencing it as an unambiguous good, it is actually a source of anxiety and distress for many people or for most people. And the reason that is, is that free will, radical freedom, means that fundamentally, at the end of the day, we're responsible for all the actions that we take or don't take, and any of the consequences that result from that. 
And so as a consequence of that, sometimes as a kind of defense mechanism against that, we deny the reality of our own agency, our own radical freedom. There's a a pair of existentialist philosophers in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, Scott mentioned one of them, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, and another, Simone de Beauvoir, who came up with this concept known as bad faith. And bad faith was their term for this psychological defense mechanism. So bad faith is basically refers to the idea that when faced with the notion of our radical freedom and the fact that we can choose to do whatever we want and that therefore we are accountable for whatever we do or don't do, rather than confront the weight of that, we in fact sometimes deny our free will and act as though our choice is limited by some external constraint. So to illustrate an example, Scott mentioned in his explainer that you have a sort of, there are these kind of two strains of existentialism. You've got the kind of Christian religious strain, and then you have a more kind of atheistic strain. Sartre and Beauvoir were both in the latter camp. And they would say, for example, that belief in God is an example of bad faith. They would say any kind of claim that is premised on the notion that God is telling you to do or not to do something is an example of bad faith. They would say, well, that is just a kind of construct. God isn't real. You are just imagining this force acting upon you. And you, in fact, have the ability to do or not do whatever you want to do or not want to do. So, for example, they would look on like a kind of existentialist read, for example, of let's say somebody like Darth Vader in Return of the Jedi would be to say he is, in fact, acting in a kind of bad faith when he is saying that, like, he has to obey his master and like it's too late for him and so on. They would basically their read would basically saying that Darth Vader, by virtue of everything that he's done in his life as Darth Vader, by virtue of all the kind of crimes that he has committed on behalf of the Empire, rather than face the fact that like he made all of those choices willingly and decided to do all of those things and could make a choice not to do them, he would rather adopt this mindset that says he has no choice, he's stuck. And that is a kind of a way of evading his fundamental freedom and choice that he has at any given moment to stop doing what he's doing and make different choices. Was that basically correct? Can I say something right here? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I think there's actually a a little bit of a tell here. I'm just, you know, as you were talking earlier about the idea that, that a sort of determinism is, is more of a, 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 it's, it's often a dark side or antagonistic view in star Wars. There's a lot of like, it's your destiny. This is your destiny. And I'm remembering that when Luke turns himself into Vader in Return of the Jedi, I could I could be remembering the scene wrong, but I think that Luke says I forget how he sets it up, but but Darth Vader actually instead of asserting something as your destiny, sort of says like, well, like if that's your destiny, and it's sort of like it's I mean it's not a it's not a denial of determinism, but it's it's not an open and shut case in the way that 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 all the previous assertions of destiny seemed to be. Yeah, yeah, this is actually something that like I like in my head as as we kind of introduced this topic, I was thinking about and then just kind of like put to the side, which is that like the franchise does admittedly kind of play fast and loose with this notion of destiny. Like I'm not sure that Star Wars itself agrees internally about like the role of like destiny versus like free will and choice. Mm-hmm. I think they kind of they kind of particularly the word destiny destiny gets like ping ponged a lot in star Wars. And it's not like totally clear whether they mean like fixed destiny, like some path that's already out there and you just kind of have to stay on that path. Or if destiny is like something more like something that is more kind of like actually freely chosen or so on that you kind of choose like by making a certain set of choices, some kind of end becomes made possible or not made possible or something like that. But yeah, you're right about that. Like, I, th- I think there is a certain amount of like internal inconsistency in Star Wars about that. I think, um, sorry, did you have more about existentialism? I had kind of interrupted. No, 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 no that, that, that was pretty much what I wanted to say on that topic. So I think that I had kind of placed it before my mind thinking about this, that the destiny talk is, is often brandied about by particularly Palpatine and Vader, though I, I think, you know, Yoda and, and Obi Wan might might use it a little bit on on Endor, but uh, I had not considered this idea how that sort of traps the Jedi and they're thinking about Vader. It sort of puts them on that, as it were, sort of uh, dark side of the equation. Um, I thought that was a really cool insight because that's where we come to see that they're wrong, right? That's that's a huge yeah, mistake exactly. of of Yoda's and Obi Wan's. 
Uh, and it's a mistake that they're engaged in the kind of thinking that Palpatine and, and Vader engage in. I think that's a really cool, really cool way of thinking about that. Yeah, yeah, I think it is. It, it is an interesting kind of like observation, and in some ways, it like you could even, if you think about like over the the kind of arc of the first six episodes of the Skywalker saga, you could almost see it in a way as a kind of like an extension or continuation of like some of the like flaws of the Jedi. This kind of motif that kind of begins in the Phantom Menace and so on of like these mistakes that the Jedi make along the way. I think it's kind of part of that story that gets introduced in the prequels. So what I'm hearing is the good guys are existentialists and the bad guys are Calvinists. <laughs> um, so I, I think that uh, it's fun, though, like you mentioned, you know, does Star Wars have a fixed view on this? And I think it's at least kind of fun that it doesn't, because on the one hand, you might see if I can just talk of like Star Wars as like the Star Wars universe Star Wars seems to scold the the destiny view that Vader is this had this fixed destiny, you know, he's irredeemable. It shows that's wrong. But then if you zoom out, you know, you say, oh, well, then maybe Qui-Gon was right um, about this prophecy and the destiny was there all along in this kind of like, you know, Greek tragedy kind of way of you end up fulfilling your destiny by, you know, you didn't know who your father was when you killed him kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. As you were mentioning mentioning that, what popped into my head was to like go to bring in a different franchise. I was thinking about um, the Game of Thrones finale in season eight when like there's the whole little like council, and then like Tyrion gives that like weird speech about why Bran should be king, and then he like turns to him, and then Bran says something like, "Why do you think I came here?" So like with the implication like Bran knew everyone was gonna die and like didn't say anything so he could become king. Right. What do you mean? You just knew all of this? (laughs) He's the real villain. (laughs) It is, yeah. So yeah, I mean, like, I think there's a kind of like simple. I think there's a kind of parallel there with Star Wars. Like, did like, like, in order to get to the point where like Vader's throwing Palpatine down the shaft and blows him up, like, did all of this death and like destruction have to happen? Yeah, and I think that this. It's actually funny. This is, I think, makes a good distinction that. When I teach free will, I always have to make, and that's a distinction between determinism and fatalism. So mm. determinism is just the idea that every action is determined by some prior action, right? So when you choose, when Devor and I chose to record this, right, you can trace our, our histories and our genetics and see that it was it was always going to happen, right? Like it, we, we could not have done otherwise because of our psychological makes up, makeups and our, our ways of what we interacted with in the world. We were always going to make this choice, right? And so, you know, you go to the ice cream parlor and they ask you what, what flavor you want. And just because of the way your brain is structured and because of the way the question was asked, you're not act- like there's really only one answer you can give. Whereas fatalism is is not necessarily determinism. It's it's that, you know, something sort of preordained or chosen. And that's sort of compatible with you, you know, trying to thwart it, right? Like that's the sort of like Greek tragedy view that, that you can try to get out of your fate, but you can't. And maybe Star Wars Destiny is more like the latter. Maybe it's more like the kind of, you know, Anakin was always going to do this, but by virtue of a lot of decisions going awry, it was done this way. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, it does. Yeah, it's a kind of like, yeah, I like that in the sense of like, it's a kind of squaring the circle of like, how do we reconcile, let's say, the existence of this like chosen one prophecy with like this hard left turn that like happens in real life with like with the Empire and Vader and, and the destruction of the Jedi and so on. Yeah, the course correction is is takes a long like it's inevitable, but it is very dirty. Yeah. And then I think going back to sort of like zooming out, like, you know, so now we're feeling, you know, we're watching the the Skywalker, you know, you're watching the original trilogy and you, you kind of get done and you're thinking like, oh, maybe no fate. And you zoom out and bring in Qui-Gon and like, oh, well, maybe fate's there again. And then we zoom out again and it's like, oh, no, the Emperor wasn't destroyed. And, <laughs> yes. And maybe that's another strike against fate. And then you get to the very end, the Rey Skywalker and you're like, oh, well, is that a way of Skywalker you know, Anakin Skywalker still triumph, you know, like does does that yes, bring yeah. it back in and 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 the course correction takes, you know, a, a very uh difficult kind of move to 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 make Ray be <laughs> the vehicle by which the sort of Skywalker promises is kept. And I like that it ends in a way that 
you can see Star Wars coming down on one. You can make a good case one way or the other, and I think that's the mark of a good a good mythology. Right. Yeah. And like something I was thinking about as you were talking, I think I mentioned this in the context of uh, my Palpatine episode, but something that I do hope maybe the Star Wars canon addresses at some point, it kind of circles back to is that is that line in Revenge of the Sith with Yoda when they're like talking about when like he, Obi-Wan and Mace are talking about Anakin and like Obi-Wan is asking like, is he in fact the chosen one? And like Mace is like, well, like that's what the prophecy says. And then Yoda has a sign where it says a prophecy that misread could have been. Mm-hmm. It would be nice if in some way that like it touches on like this question of we're in fact everybody, the Jedi and so on, operating on a fundamentally wrong premise. Like, was there in fact maybe some sort of prophecy at work? Is there some kind of destiny? But they just all got it like totally wrong about like how it is actually supposed to function. And so that's what we're seeing. Like th- that is kind of bridging the disparity between like what we think quote unquote is supposed to happen and then like what we're actually seeing on the screen. I also, I'm very curious about this notion of prophecy. Like, is there some, like, Delphic oracle in Star Wars? Like, where is this prophecy coming from? Yeah, I don't really, yeah, it does, they don't really talk about it. Like, there's, for example, there's, like, the the audio drama, there's Dooku Jedi Lost that, like, talks a little bit about prophecies as, like, being stored in the Jedi Temple and, I guess, like, being able to, like, be, be read in some form. But, yeah, it's not really clear, like, where these are coming from or whether this is just, like, there's a little bit of like maybe it's just like visions that come to particular Jedi and then they get recorded and so on. So and I mean like another thought that I have had and maybe this is like fundamentally irreconcilable with like what we're dealing with in Star Wars is like are Star Wars prophecies like Harry Potter prophecies, which is to say that like they get read and recorded, but then fundamentally somebody makes them come true. Because like that's that's the conceit in Harry Potter, which is like Harry wasn't destined to be like the one to destroy Voldemort, but but Voldemort makes the choice to make Harry be that person who destroys him. So I, again, like I don't know if I don't know if that really works in the context of Star Wars. Of saying like, well, did Qui Gon make Anakin the chosen one? Did he just like find this like fatherless kid and say like that's the one and like that put him on the path? <laughs> Are there other ones like in the galaxy? Just like. It turns out Kitster also didn't have a dad. <laughs> Greedo didn't have a dad. All the kids from those scenes didn't have dads. Oh my god. That would be an amazing revelation. <laughs> they were all virgin season the force. <laughs> just Qui-Gon just happened to pick this one. <laughs> right. Kitster is the Neville Longbottom of, of Tatooine. Oh my god. He is. <laughs> I want that story. <sighs> um, oh my god! So yeah, I, I'm, I'm very curious, like just who this like Star Wars Stradamus is recording these these prophecies, and and what the like what the track record for interpreting them is in in the the Jedi Council. Like, do they keep a big scoreboard? Like, we, <laughs> you know, like out of a thousand generations, they ought to know like if they've done a good or bad job interpreting these things. <laughs> Yeah, it's like after like after Anakin turned to the dark side and wiped out the Jedi, somebody went to like the board that says like like days since prophecy wasn't fulfilled and just goes to zero. Like, <laughs> right. I guess we got that one wrong. Right. Does the Star Wars History Channel have like the prophecy code? <laughs> oh my <laughs> so, oh, god. Yeah, I don't know. Did you have any other thoughts about the I I I I, I think that You've given me a lot to chew on. I don't know if you had any any other thoughts about the the free will prophecy. No, fate no, stuff. I, don't, I don't think so. I, th- I think I think I got it all out. <laughs> the the last uh, question I had, you know, I think I, I had mentioned in in my first sort of, uh, message to you after listening to the episode was that I wish there was a sort of like after show call in hour where I could go <laughs> on and talk about it, and that was the sort of origin of this. But I was really interested in when you make an episode like the Stoic episode what you take yourself to be doing. Mm-hmm. So you might be saying in the episode that stoicism is somehow, you know, through all the various ways it filters down to, to our current time and inspiration for the stuff in star Wars. Mm-hmm. Right. Or you might be saying that stoicism is uh, a useful way of better understanding the mythology of star Wars. 
Or maybe Stoicism is a way to fill in some of the gaps in the mythology. Or maybe it's something else. And I was kind of curious because it, it's something that, and we don't do a lot of this in, in We Serve Droids, uh, partly because we like are always six feet away from making a fart joke. <laughs> so we, we, we can only get, get, so, get so into this kind of detail. But it's something that, I, that we still do from time to time. And I think I especially uh, bring up a lot of sort of biblical and mythological allusions in Star Wars. And I never know exactly if I'm, what kind of claim I'm making. I don't know if my question is, makes a lot of sense to you or not. Yeah, so I was thinking about this, like, what what is the purpose? Like, what am I trying to accomplish and so on by drawing these connections? And I think on some level, there is a kind of epistemological challenge whenever you talk about, let's say, well, like, the overlap between, let's say, Star Wars and the Stoics, or let's say, Star Wars and biblical narratives. And what I mean by, like, the epistemological challenge is that, like, absent any kind of direct confirmation, let's say words or notes or something that somebody wrote down or said in an interview, we can't know for certain that Lucas was influenced by, say, Stoicism in writing Star Wars or by the Bible. We sort of, we can find these kind of correlations. We can say, well, here's this storyline and idea over here. And then here is the storyline or idea or something in this other text. And there's a kind of overlap. But again, absent like somebody telling us or giving us confirmation, we can say, well, like that's where he, they pulled it from. There's a bit of that challenge. What we can say though, at least like, let's say if we talk about stoicism, something like that, is we can say that the the philosophical ideas in Star Wars are part of a real world intellectual lineage. That Mm -hmm. much we can say, like that these ideas are not wholesalely kind of coming out of the mind of George Lucas and they're wholesale fabricated. They are, in fact, they have these kind of analogs in the real world. So I think part of my purpose in doing like an episode like episode six is to think about the teachings of the Jedi in a more systematic fashion. So which is to say, like all of the sayings, all the little Yoda quotes that we have, all of the things that he does or that Qui-Gon does or Obi-Wan and so on and so forth that they're all part of a kind of larger whole, that they are part of this sort of like larger worldview and that we can kind of make sense of this larger worldview. And that it's not just these kind of like discrete moments or these discrete kind of sayings and such. So I think that's part of the purpose of putting together an episode like that. I think it's also, at least for me on a kind of personal level, I think it's about kind of complicating the divide between fiction and nonfiction. And this is something that I'm like really interested in conceptually, intellectually, and then also a little bit as a, as a writer, as a kind of practice, which is to say that one of the things that I firmly believe is that not only is there truth in fiction, not only is it the case that fiction can tell us things about the real world, but sometimes fiction is actually a better medium for expressing certain truths than nonfiction. That actually, once we step out of the quote-unquote real world and we imagine something that is fantastical, something that is not unlike our world in some or in any way, that that can be a kind of conduit or vehicle to express certain truths in a kind of better way, in a clearer way than if you just sort of wrote them down in a kind of nonfiction or presented them in a kind of nonfiction context. So sort of connected to that. Can I, can I ask you just yeah, like, yeah, what sure. would be like, um, I mean, there's, there's, there's lots of potentials. What do you take to be like a good example of that kind of thing? Okay. Yeah. So a good example of this, and that, now we're going like, we're now going like a field from Star Wars altogether, but into literature. So one of my favorite pieces of fiction of literature is The Metamorphosis by Franz Kafka. Mm-hmm. So for those who have not read it, uh, The Metamorphosis is a story about this guy by the name of Gregor Samsa, who is a salesman. And he wakes up one day and he finds that he has been transformed into an insect. And the story is basically about him sort of learning to live in this new body and then also sort of de- 
the way that this transformation, which is never explained in the story, affects his relationship with his family. So what we see over the course of his story is that he becomes increasingly alienated from his family. They start treating him less as a member of their family, less as their son and so on, and more as this kind of like foreign, hostile invader and as a kind of nuisance, as some, like something that needs to be gotten rid of. And then eventually, I don't remember exactly how it ends, but basically it ends with Gregor Samsa dying because he basically like left alone and neglected and nobody cares for him. And so that is like that in that story, Kafka is fundamentally like writing about himself and his own feelings about alienation. Now, he could have done that, and, you know, he did in a nonfiction context, like, you know, we have journals and diaries from him and so on, where he's talking about that. But something about that fictional form, which is like taking this premise of a guy who turns into a bug, conveys that truth in such a, like, visceral fashion that is, that in a way, like, makes it more powerful than just writing down, like, I feel alienated and dissociated from the rest of my family. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not a bestseller. Yeah, exactly. But once you take this premise of guy turns into a bug, like it's on the one hand utterly fantastical. It could not happen. But there is a kind of like the way that the story unfolds, like there is a kind of truth in there that can, gets conveyed very powerfully through that device. So, yeah. So, I mean, like part of part of at least like the moral or the lesson of like doing an episode like like episode six and sort of talking about the philosophy of star wars and where it kind of intersects and overlaps with the real world is that you know part of the kind of moral of that is that looking to let's say star wars or to any other like piece of fiction whether that's harry potter lord of the rings whatever film or television show looking to to anything like that for guidance about how to live your life or about how to do the right thing it isn't in fact that crazy it's not a sign that you are, let's say, delusional or that you have kind of severed yourself from reality and kind of cocooned yourself into this kind of make-believe fantasy world. And the reason that it isn't crazy is because the, all of the ideas that are getting expressed and conveyed in these works of fiction have, in fact, real-world analogs. They're not just pure, strong fantasy. Like, there is actually something in the real world that they are resonating with. So, yeah, that's part of the project. Cool. Yeah. So, I think, right, there's a lot there. I think that... I mean, it's a lot of like a sort of a mixture of of some of the the possible things that I, that I had laid out. Um, I definitely think it's right. It's it's not in any way crazy that Stoic ethics could filter down into a, a George Lucas. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I, in the extent that like for some of these ancient thinkers, it's it's almost impossible for that not to happen. It's very hard to grow up, at least in the West, and this is probably true worldwide now, to not have been influenced by Plato. Yeah. Like, like the, the, I mean, just on something silly. Like if you, if you watch like Freaky Friday, this like idea of a soul that can go to a different body, like, well, there's, there's some Platonism there. Yes. Yeah. In a way that, that prior to Plato, like it just, that would be like, you know? <laughs> um, uh, so I definitely think that, that, that's right. And I, I do, I love the way that you kind of thought about this sort of Kafka example. I, I, if I could play off of that a little bit, I think that. It's hard for me to know if the upshot of using a fiction or a narrative, I guess I'm, I'm also saying more like a narrative than, than a fiction. Um, Cause I think not nonfiction narrative can, can also oftentimes do it as well in a way that, that nonfiction, just like, you know, the kind of journalistic prose or, or, or non-narrative nonfiction has trouble doing is that it's not necessarily that the truth couldn't be conveyed or couldn't be conveyed in many times even more clearly. But it, it might be that, I mean, gosh, it's, it's really hard to say this in a way that's not going to sound totally cheesy, but that the, the method by which we arrive at the truth or the method by which we arrive at something meaningful is oftentimes of greater or equal importance to arriving at it at all. And it might be that the mental exercise of doing these kinds of things, right, of reading a Kafka story or a Borges story or something like that is more sort of transformative to us so that it's it's not such an idea that, that I gain some kind of knowledge or truth that I couldn't the other way, but that somehow... I'm a different person than I would have been. I, I don't know if any of this is making any sense. Yeah. 
but it's not so much that I, I have a, I, I think it's not the case that when I get done with Kafka, I now believe something that I didn't believe before, though that's certainly possible, but right. that I'm a different person than I was before. Yeah. And I don't think these two things are mutually exclusive, right? That they can both be a great power of fiction, of mythology, of narrative, etc. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you about that. Yeah, I think that's a good observation. And I, I think, I don't know, to maybe very cheesily wrap it up to, to where where we started, I think that in, in some ways, if, if we had that big, uh, you know, scoreboard for the, the, Jedi, uh, <laughs> the Jedi prophecies, yeah. I mean, in some ways score this for the, the Heracliteans who see a world in motion, right? Yep. That mm-hmm. some kind of accurate description of the forces that matter most to us are, are going to be hard to capture with something like an equation, right? Yeah. That there's enough movement and goings on and living in the world. And, and right, this is why, I mean, I think that the, the Eleatics sort of like won the war for a bit. Like, like for a long time, we wanted to describe the world very easily, succinctly, up until maybe like someone whom I don't know a lot about, but like Hegel and then Marx, um, who are interested in, in saying like, no, to describe the world without all this movement is going to be a big, a big mistake. And maybe like things like narratives and mythologies are the only way of just, just you know, to, to kind of echo something you said. Maybe they're the only ways to describe the kind of movement of the world. Like the story itself has to have has to have moving parts in yeah, a way that, I, you know, I was depressed in my room. Sincerely, Franz doesn't have the right kind of movements <laughs> yes, yes. as Gregor Samsa awoke one morning to find himself transformed or however it goes. Yeah, <laughs> I like that idea. Yeah, no, I, 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 th- I think you're on to something there. I think you're right. All right. So I think on that note, we will close this out. I really enjoyed this. You know, we had on the one hand, like we had a certain kind of structure and vision for where this was going to go, but then it also became a little freewheeling, which I did like. So I think this is going to be a a nice little bonus for folks to listen to that, or we just got so in the weeds that like, this is the thing that (laughs) torpedoes the show. (laughs) It never recovers. Yeah, this 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 episode was never actually released after Tavor listened to it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, so thank you, Scott, for joining me on this. Um, I do I, I do hope and plan on having both you and Chris ha- on the show at some point. Yeah. As soon as I figure out like some sort of topic, <laughs> <laughs> he's not going to begrudge not having to talk about. <laughs> the the uh what was the the line that that, that compares uh stoic fire to, to sperm i don't think he's yes. gonna be sad about missing out on that <laughs> the sperm talk <laughs> all right but yeah uh thanks again for joining me and to everybody listening uh thanks for making it to this point <laughs> and sticking through and then you know be sure to tune back in on october 25th for episode seven which is going to be my discussion of Star Wars Rebels with Alice and Laura from Force Toast, Star Wars Happy Hour. And until then, look for the Force and you will always find me. 